Good morning, church. How you doing? Yeah, good to see you. Good to be with you. Colossians 3, as Nathan said, we look at 12 to 17. Hey, listen, uh, you, know, you know Billy Graham, right? Everybody knows Billy Graham. You know what I'm talking about. World-renowned 20th century evangelist, went to be with the Lord a few years ago at the age of 99 and uh, so faithful throughout his life to proclaim the gospel and live that out. But he often asked um, a really provocative question in his sermons. And he said this, he would, he would ask this, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now think about that for a moment. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you of that? And it's critical that you and I be able to answer that question with a resounding yes, because Jesus laid out a concern for us, for those of us who are professing Christians, and the concern was this. He laid it out in the gospel. He said this. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everyone who professes belief is actually saved. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. So there's the distinction. The will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, speaking of the day of judgment, he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That's some pretty high-end religious stuff he just listed. And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And the point of that is that many, many, many religious people, many religious people doing impressive religious things will think they're believers when they're not. And what's really tragic about this is that they're going to get all the way to the throne of heaven before they realize it. before they realize that they've missed it and that they were not genuinely redeemed. Now, today's passage is going to make sure that that's not you or me. We're going to be prompted to ask some questions that are going to get to the heart of what it means to be a genuine Christian, what it means to be genuinely, truly saved. Not, not just impressively religious, because that's not going to cut it but genuinely redeemed. And so take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Hopefully you're already there. Uh, verses 12 to 17. You follow along in your Bible as I read. The Apostle Paul writes, and this is building off of what he said earlier in the chapter, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen? Amen. Well, three essential questions for every professing believer. Let's start with this uh, first one. Uh, question number one, am I even a Christian? Am I even a Christian? Now, this question, obviously, this has to be the starting point. And, and, but I'm cautious about this because I know that, that asking a question like this can potentially hurt those very tender souls in our church family who want to kind of take everything upon themselves and think every single thing is something that might be affecting their life. And, and there's a good side to that. But there are those fragile souls who are generally so sensitive to the Spirit that they take this all to heart when it doesn't really apply to them. And in fact, what the intent of this is, is to challenge the assumptions of those who think they're saved, who have professed they're saved, but don't have any evidence whatsoever that that is true. Those who are religiously observant at some level, but lack true faith in Jesus Christ, and who lack the fruit of that, the evidence of it. So Paul's built his argument, as I said, the passage we read this morning, Paul's built this argument off of the first part of the chapter, so it's necessary for just a few moments for us to go back into those verses in the first part of chapter 3 and see what the setup is for what we're going to see in a few moments. And so Paul says, speaking to believers, he says this, because again, this letter is written to a church. Speaking to believers, he says in verse 4, Christ, who is your life... And that, that's a huge declaration about what it means to be a Christian. Christ who is your life, adding in verse 11, kind of a, an expansion on that saying, Christ is all and in all, making it clear that for the Christian, Jesus is everything. For the true Christian, Jesus is everything. And that's the starting point. And, if, and honestly, if Jesus isn't your everything, if Jesus isn't your life, if Jesus isn't your all, on what basis do you even call yourself a Christian? It's not on any biblical basis that you do so. You know, some people say, Jesus is part of my life. No, He's not part of your life. Some people will ramp it up, pull out an adjective and say, Jesus is an important part of my life. No, He's not. If Jesus isn't everything, if He is not all, if He is not your life in its entirety, then you're missing the point. Jesus isn't an add-on to anyone's life. J. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary, said, Jesus is either Lord of all or is not Lord at all. And that applies to every single one of us in our faith, in our profession of, of, of being a Christian. Jesus is either Lord of all, or He's not Lord at all. Now, that's the setup for what He then says in verse 5. I promise we'll get to our passage in just a few moments, but we want to do the proper setup for this whole thing. In verse 5, we're told, in light of that, if Christ is your life, if He is your all, 
Then, then verse 5, we're told, put to death what is earthly in you. That's our crucifixion with Christ, becoming dead to sin. And then Paul uh, uses this extended metaphor to describe what it's like to put to death what is earthly in us. And it's this metaphor about what we're wearing. In verse 9, he says, put off the old self and put on, verse 10, put on the new self. In other words, when you become a Christian, you now embark on a, on a process of taking off the old ratty clothing that you were, wear as, you were wearing as a sinner. You're taking off the grave clothes, so to speak, and you're putting on, throughout the entirety of your life, you're putting on new clothes, clothing that is in keeping with the Christian life. And he makes sure that we know in the passage by using the right verb tenses to tell us this is an ongoing process throughout your life. It's not a one-time thing where once I become a Christian, I take off all the grave clothes, I put on something new, and all of a sudden now I'm perfect. I've got all of the clothing of Christ on me. This is an ongoing process throughout the entirety of a Christian's life. And, and we see this in the present tense of the verb in verse 10, where he says, which is being renewed, is being renewed, continuous present throughout our lives. Now, here we come, finally, to our own passage, verse 12. Starting in verse 12, he gets specific on what the put-on part is all about. So, the put-off is get rid of the sin. We talked about that last week. And the put-on part, which we only hinted at last week, he gets to here, verse 12. He says, put on then. And before he tells us what we need to put on, he wants to make sure he's talking to the right crowd. Put on then. He pauses now to mark them as genuine Christians. Remembering that this letter is written to the church in Colossae, that the, that the believers, the Colossian believers had a problem, the church had a problem with fake believers and fake teachers who were undermining the faith of true believers by distorting the gospel message. And so he marks them, he wants them to know what does it take to really be a Christian. And they are, he, he identifies three things. Three descriptors here of a genuine Christian. Ready for these? They're in your notes and they'll be on the screen here. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It's verse 12. So a true Christian, if you're genuinely saved, you can say all these three things about yourself. A true Christian can say, first of all, I am chosen. Now that's important because I need to know that I cannot do anything. I've never been able to do enough to affect my own salvation. I needed to be chosen to salvation by the Lord Himself. Now I get, this is a really difficult thing to grasp. And I also get that we're in a non-denominational church where we have people who've come, people have come from no church backgrounds, but a lot of people have come from different church backgrounds. And some of them don't necessarily get too excited about the idea that God chose us to salvation. But all I know is when I read the scriptures, that's what it says. And then I understand something further, that in my limited human capacity, I can't possibly fathom how that choosing works. But I read it. I'm a chosen one. I read it in Romans 8 that we are predestined to this salvation, and I can't get past the wording of it. And so I accept it on faith that God chose me to salvation, and then I realize what an incredible sense of identity that gives me. God chose me, not because of any merit, not because I'd done anything to deserve it. He just chose me. He called me to salvation when I had nothing in myself that would ever commend me to Him. 
And that imprints me with who he is. And we're living at a time, and you know this is true, because if you watch the news and you know what's going on in culture today, perhaps at no other time in history have human beings struggled so intensely with, so intensely with matters of identity. Our culture has assaulted us. The world is intent on making who we are as human beings as confusing as possible. And God says to us, I chose you. That changes me just on, just on that point alone. But then Paul goes on to say, not only am I one of God's chosen ones, but I'm holy. I'm forgiven. As a true, any true Christian can say, I'm forgiven. I am, I am declared to be righteous. The, the word in Romans 8 is I'm, I'm justified before God. Declared to be righteous, or Paul says here, holy, which is the word for set apart on the basis of Christ's substitutionary atonement, or it's Christ giving his life for my life, his sacrifice in my place, which erases all of my sin. It erases my past sin, my present sin. It erases all my future sin covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So even though the people around me still see me as quite a bit of a sinner, It's true. People around you see you still as quite a bit of a sinner. God sees us as holy, as righteous, as perfect. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't still struggle. I continue to struggle against temptation. I often give in to sin. In fact, when it it came time for me to get a tattoo, because all the cool pastors do, it was the pandemic, you know, we didn't get a puppy. So I got a tattoo, and I, I was thinking, like, what would I put there? What, what, what's meant so much to me? What really describes my Christian life? And I thought about Romans chapter 7 and the whole story, the things I do, uh, the things I don't want to do, those things I do, the things I do want to do, those things I don't do, old wretched man that I am. And Martin Luther had this phrase in Latin, simul justice et peccator, which means both saint and sinner. And that describes us as Christians. We are at the very same time saint in God's eyes, holy declared to be righteous, but also we're still sinners because we're down here on earth, still facing temptation and still quite often giving into it. But God sees us as forgiven. Positionally, we're already there with him in glory. And so my purpose and goal as a Christian is to put off sin as much as I can with the Spirit's help and to be holy even as He is holy by putting on the clothing of Christ, becoming clothed in Christ's righteousness. As a true Christian, I can say I'm chosen, I'm forgiven. Here's the third one. I'm loved. I'm loved. It's another great struggle for us. There's some old song that used to say, looking for love in all the wrong places. That describes like every human being. We're always looking for love in all the wrong places. And if we get this, if, if we truly understand that the one who, who we really need to hear from, which is God the Father, we really need to hear from Him, and He says, I love you, that that's going to be enough. And so then I get to, as a Christian, I get to frame up every other human relationship I can frame up around the, that one dominating, all-consuming thought, which is that God loves me. I frame up every other human relationship with the premise that I look for love first from God so that when, so that when, not if, 
my human relationships fail me and they disappoint me, I'm not devastated. I mean, I think about even, even our, our most beautiful human relationships can fail us and disappoint us. Our parents can disappoint us. Our children can disappoint us. Even in marriage, even if you have an awesome marriage, it can disappoint you. Even if you have an awesome marriage, and I want you to think about it this way, but even if you have an awesome marriage and it goes on for decades, at the very end, one of you is going to die first and the other is going to be devastated if your whole life was built around that person rather than the Lord. If all of your joy and satisfaction is found in your spouse or in your children or in your grandchildren or in some other person, at some point, they're either going to intentionally disappoint you or they're going to pass from this life and it's going to be crushing to you if you don't first know that God loves you and that that's all you need. And that's what he tells us here. The genuine Christian knows this. I'm chosen. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. And it's enough. Now, it's, it's possible, probable, that there are those watching right now or those maybe that are even in the room who are hearing this and going like, I've never done that. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian in the past. Maybe you're calling yourself a Christian right now or maybe you're not at all and this is all brand new to you. But you can have this. If the Spirit is stirring you right now about all of this, you can respond to Jesus by simply, and it's by faith alone because you're bringing nothing to the table but faith the Holy Spirit moving you to admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, to believe that Jesus Christ gave His life on the cross to cleanse you of your sins, and He was raised to new life from the dead, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and call on Him to save you. That is the gospel. Admit, believe, and confess by faith alone. All right, that's question one. Ready for question two? Are you out there? Ready for question two? Thank you. If I've made the decision to pr and professed Christ, then I ask this second question. Am I wanting to be more virtuous? Do I actually want to be more like Jesus? And this is putting on the virtue of Christ. This is a telltale sign of genuine faith because status quo Christianity, a Christianity where we say like, well, you know what? I, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at such and such an age. And then if you look at the balance of your life, nothing's ever changed. And you're basing your whole thing on a single decision that you made at some point in your life. But from then on, it was just the status quo. That's a non-starter. In fact, maybe you've heard the expression, I think it's like a business guru type expression, but if you're standing still, you're going backwards. If you're standing still, you're going uh, backwards. And that describes the, the faux Christian life that the Apostle Paul is addressing here in the church in Colossae. Genuine Christians are growing Christians. And the principle at play here, which which Paul's explaining in this chapter and which applies when you're, when you're dealing with addictive behavior, people who are coming out of addictions, the principle here is that if, you have, if you're to have any success at putting off, that is ridding your life of sin, if you're, have, if, if you're to have any success with that, then you also have to have a plan to put on. 
You can't simply put off without also putting on. In other words, we need to replace the clothes that we're taking off. We're taking off the old ratty clothes. We're taking off the sinful clothes of our past life. And to extend the metaphor further, listen, if we just take those clothes off, then we're naked and ashamed. That didn't work out so well in the Garden of Eden, by the way. You were just naked and ashamed. And we need to take on the clothing of Christ. So Paul says here, what the, what the chosen, forgiven, or holy and beloved are putting on, here's the clothing that we're putting on. Verse 12. We're putting on compassionate hearts. He's going to list seven things here. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Which then he pauses to give like a little further definition of that in verse 13, because evidently patience is a problem for a lot of people. Anyone else? Anyone else? I was raising my hand for myself. Bearing with one another, in case we didn't understand what it meant. And then he says, and if one has a complaint against another, I'm going like, if, Paul, have you spent any time in the church? If anyone in the church, because he's writing to a church, if anyone in the church has a complaint against another, if, Paul, really? How about we just put when in there? When one has a complaint against another, because it's going to happen, notice, forgiving each other. And then he goes on to give a little explanation about what forgiveness is about. And he ties it back to what the Lord has done for us, saying, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now there, as soon as I read that phrase, I hear echoes of the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching on the Lord's Prayer and, and uh, teach us to pray, and Jesus taught them to pray, and part of that was, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. We're asking God to forgive us according to the same pattern that we've forgiven others. Now, Paul kind of reverses that here and says, you want to be forgiving others as the Lord has forgiven you. It's the same principle. Verse 14, and then he gives this seventh one. So he's given six so far, six virtues. Verse 14, and above all of these, he gives this, this one overarching virtue that ties all the other virtues together. He says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, it's going to be so much easier to be compassionate or to be kind or to be forgiving. It's going to be easier to do those things if we start with love and we genuinely love others. Now, notice this list. I'm going to leave it up there for a second, and I want you to ask yourself the question, am I growing in these seven Christian virtues? We're going to build this list out. Am I growing in these seven Christian virtues? Now, I'm going to give you a little definition for each one of these. It's not a big comprehensive definition. It's a one-liner. It gets to the essence of what, what the word means. It could go a lot more, you know, more in depth with each one of these, but I'm just going to give you a quick hit on each one. And the whole time you're going to be thinking, am I growing in these virtues as a Christian? So compassion. I yearn, yearn to show people, show mercy to people. I yearn for it. Some of you are mercy people, like you're compassion people. Like, like this is your easiest thing. I love people like that. I'm not like that. So I like having people around me who are like super good at that. It can, it can insulate me and shield me. 
But I need to have a measure of compassion in my own life, don't I? You need to have it in your own life. Some people are just good at it. Others have to see that grow in us. I yearn to show mercy to people or kindness. I am, I am generous. Listen to this. I'm generous and good to people. We're going to come back to that. Humility. I don't think too much of myself. Now, this is not self-deprecation or self-loathing. This is just knowing my place in the world and, and just not having an inflated head about it, about who I am. Meekness. I'm gentle with people. Patience. I endure calmly even when provoked. Mm, did you hear that? Yeah. Forgiveness. I don't hold others' sin against them. And love. I intentionally and sacrificially put others before me no matter who they are or what they've done. Again, I just want to leave the list up there. And I want you to consider the list. And I want you to consider your own growth in these virtues. And I want to say it again. It, it isn't that we've achieved these virtues. It, it isn't that at the point of salvation or at some magic point that we make a certain decision that all of a sudden we become perfect in these virtues. It's an entire lifetime of building these virtues into our, into our lives. And so consider the list, your own growth in these virtues. And then here's what we're going to do. We're going to add some phrases at the end to get us thinking about it, just stirring up how we're actually living these out. So for example, I am meek. I am meek and I'm gentle with people at work or, or, in, or in my neighborhood. Are you gentle with people or are you hard and harsh? Are you growing in the virtue of meekness or, or, or am I forgiving? in my marriage? Do you forgive your spouse? Now, remember what our definition says here, I don't hold others' sin against them. Are you the kind of spouse that saves things up to bring out strategically at a moment when you can use it against your spouse? Are you growing in the virtue or are you, are you, or are you weaponizing kind of the anti-virtue? leveraging it for your own purposes? Am I, am I growing in, in, in patience in my marriage, in my family? In, in fact, let's, let's do this. Let's think about this entire list of seven, and let's ask this question. Am I growing in these seven virtues so that my kids are actually seeing it? Because that's really the little incubator, isn't it? In our own families. And our kids and our spouses see everything. They see what's going on. They see us at our best. They see us at our worst. You can't, can't really put on any kind of a show at home. You can put it on here. You can put it on at work. You can put it on when you go to the mall. But not at home. Your kids see everything. Would your kids say... My mom, my dad's growing in these Christian virtues. Do your neighbors know that you're a Christian based on these? Do they see love from you? Do they see 
patience? Do they know that you care? Do you show them kindness? Are you generous and good to your neighbors, or do you blow your snow onto their yard? <laughs> do you sweep your lawn cuttings out so it, it, it runs past their house? Do you park your car so it annoys them? Do your, do your neighbors know, know on the basis of your virtuous living, do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? What about this phrase? Am I growing in these virtues so that I can see the progress that I've made from last year or five years ago or if you've been walking with Christ long enough 10 years ago? Do you see your progress in the demonstration of these virtues? A genuine Christian is growing in all of these virtues, which are in fact the virtues of Jesus Christ himself who perfectly modeled all of these for us. And every professing believer should want to be more virtuous, should want to clothe themselves with Christ. Now, before we leave this question, a caution. We, we get saved by Jesus, and there's a very definite sequence to all of this, but we get saved by Jesus, and, and the virtues then flow out of that act of grace and become the evidence that our salvation is legit. We don't grow in the virtues to gain God's favor. That's backwards. The order here is critical. Not having the virtues, not having the virtues while professing to be saved is certain evidence that the profession is false. Practicing the virtues will not save a person. You can have very virtuous people, very moral people who are not Christians. Practicing the virtues will not save a person, but may in fact show that a profession is true. That's the evidence that we're looking for. So that's the caution. Now in the passage, as we continue on here, you will see that there's a step between that getting saved, declaring that Christ is your life. There's a step between that and between sanctification and growing the virtues. It's kind of how we get there. And so question three Am I doing what's necessary to get there? So Paul writes, if you want to be this kind of person, then you must, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And he has this little parenthesis to, to describe that. He says, to which indeed you were called in one body. So this is what we were called to. And this is a reference back to their initial salvation, the moment of time that they became saved and had the forgiveness of their sins. And, and, and the fact that in verse 12, we found that God chose them. Now, what we're seeing here is, is the devotion that is necessary on the part of a Christian, the devotion that leads to the virtues that come as a result of the salvation. And so a true Christian, again, let's build another list. A true Christian has a heart that is, as we saw, at peace. It's verse 15. And this is not, a lot of people here would say, you know, I'm, I just, I got anxiety, it's just really hard, I, I feel like it, I'm often not at peace, and that's not, not really what we're talking about here, it's not that kind of peace. A true Christian is, 
has a heart that is at peace. This is not simply the absence of anxiety and turmoil in your life, but this is the removal of the enmity between you and God. So we're no longer enemies of God. The Scriptures talk about that. Before we become Christians, we're enemies of God. We're at odds with Him, and there's a separation between us and God. That's the enmity that's there as a result of our own sin. And Jesus Christ, of course, covers that by His blood. He, he bridges that distance by the cross. So we're no longer enemies of God, but are reconciled to Him by the blood of Jesus. And when you're reconciled to God, that solves the biggest problem every human being has. We've, we've got this, this peace treaty now between us and God. He's invited us in, and we've been reconciled to Him. That solves the biggest problem we're ever going to have, we're ever going to face. The biggest crisis we're ever going to face is the sin issue between us and God. And if we solve that, if we're at peace with God, then every other issue we may face in life, every other crisis, every other trial, every other hardship that might come our way, I'm telling you, it seems just so much do more doable because the biggest problem's already been solved. I can handle anything else. God solved the big one. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I'm chosen. I'm forgiven. And I'm loved. Everything else next to that is small and doable. A true Christian has a heart that's at peace. Secondly, a true Christian has a heart that is filled with gratitude. He says here, and be thankful, just this quick little sentence, be thankful. Twice more in the passage, he's going to mention gratitude. And you can't be too thankful to God. You can't be too thankful to God for what he's done. Amen? You can't be too thankful to him. And I wonder about our prayer lives. Like, like if a good portion of your prayers to God are not first thanking Him for what He has done and what He has given to you, then don't be shocked that the virtues are slow to come in your life. Like if in your prayer time, the bulk of your time is spent just whining to Him or asking Him for more stuff, God, why don't you give me this? And I need this. And why can't you supply? And why am I going through this? And why haven't you changed this? And why is this person in my life? And why can't I? And why can't I? And give me more. If that's your prayer life without... God, I'm so grateful for salvation. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sins. Thank you for the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the community of faith that you've given to me. Thank you for the opportunity to serve. Thank you for all the things you provided for me. Thank you for every dollar that's in my bank account. Thank you for the car in the driveway and the house that I get to live in. Thank you for the friends and the family that I have. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the food that's in my pantry and in my refrigerator. Thank you for all of it. Thank you for this country, this city, this county that I live in. Thank you for all of it. Rather than just coming to Him with our own grocery list of everything that we think we need and want. And we have to start with gratitude. It has to dominate our prayers in order to grow in these virtues. In fact, you know, this isn't even a, a strictly a principle that is taught by those of us who are preachers and teachers of the Word. Even good psychologists, bad psychology, but there's good psychology. Good psychology points us to things we already know about how God made us. Now listen to this, a little excerpt from uh, Psychology Today. 
I would have put an author's name, but it didn't, it didn't have an author's name on this article. But it, psychologists find that over time, feeling grateful boosts happiness and fosters both physical and psychological health, health, even among those already struggling with mental health problems. Studies show that practicing gratitude curbs the use of words expressing negative emotions and shifts inner attitude, attention away from such negative emotions as resentment and envy, minimizing the possibility of ruminating, which is a hallmark of depression. That's spot on. But listen, I can summarize that entire paragraph from Psychology Today. Let me summarize that in four words. Put off, put on. The Apostle Paul said it 2,000 years prior through the inspiration of the Spirit. Put off these negative emotions. Put on gratitude. Clothe yourself in gratitude, and it's going to help you in every other aspect of your life. So just, just lock it in here that the Bible had this truth out there long before contemporary psychology did. It's a truth rooted in the Word of God. So a true Christian has a heart that is at peace, filled with gratitude. Here's a third one, saturated in the Word. Saturated in the Word. Notice what he says, verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, <clears throat> We want to get an idea of what it, what it means to invite the Word of God in to, to dwell with us and what, what that might do to the, the house, to what that might do to the dwelling place. Uh, before Cheryl and I got married, she was, I was still living with my parents because, you know, that was smart financially, but Cheryl had her own place. Uh, she already had a job. I was super smart, guys. I married a girl who had a job and a car. So she had her own place, she had her own apartment, so she was living alone in that apartment. And, it, and when you're living alone in an apartment, it's a, it's a fairly low-impact living arrangement because it's just you. You're not impacted by any other forces, anything else that's, go, that's going on. And then, of course, we got married, and there's an impact when the two of us then moved into the home, uh, that, our first home, and, and, and there's now two of us, and, and there's an impact on the house when there's two. And then Joel came along. And um, newborns create impact, in case you didn't know that. So there was significant impact with a newborn, and then Emily, two years later, Emily came along, and then, man, I hesitate to even talk about Luke and the thirdborn, because that just adds a dynamic that is insane. And so now there's five of us living in the home. At one point, and we've never been uh, uh, pet people, at one point I remember calling Cheryl, and I saw these cute German Shepherd puppies, which are really my weakness, and I said, hey, I think I'm thinking of bringing a puppy home, and she says, well... It's the puppy or it's us, but it's not both. <laughs> so I didn't bring the puppy home. So we've never been impacted by pets, but some of you are like, you got dogs and you got cats. The Whiteside family, I checked out this morning, they have 18 different pets in their house. Now that's impact. I'm just saying like there's a lot going on there. And then you start to see, okay, so let's factor the pets out because it's me and uh, we don't have pets. So then you start shooting the kids out. You start shooting them out the door. And they get married, and they find someone, and then they move back. They move back. <laughs> the boomerang generation, they just come back. And then they come back even with kids, like they've had kids, and they come back. And all three of our kids who have married have come back and lived with us at some stage, and it always creates an impact, always like super positive. Like it's just a real, a, <laughs> an impact. 
in our life. Now listen, all of that, it's a lot of fun to talk about all of that, but I'm just saying when you invite the Word of God to dwell inside of you, it's going to create a really good impact in your life. Like having your kids back with their kids, maybe not always such a positive impact, but if you have the Word of God dwelling, you invite the Word in, and the more you invite the Word in, the more positive impact that's going to have in your life. What a good thing that's going to be for you. It's always going to produce good virtue in you. And so Christian, listen, are you saturated, saturated in the Word of God, or are you just dabbling in it? See, my concern for some of you is that the last time you had the Word of God open in front of you was the last time you were here. Last Sunday or the Sunday before or a month ago, that you haven't personally opened up the Word in the intervening days and weeks. And that's not enough. That's dabbling in the Word. It's, it, you're not saturated in the Word if that's true of you. And maybe, maybe you've wondered at times, even as we produce slides for these messages, and obviously a lot of intentionality goes into what we produce and what we show you. And, and one of the things is that you'll always see a cross-reference up there like Matthew 7 a few minutes ago, but you never see the principal passage. And why is that? Because we want you to have the passage in front of you. We want you to have it open so that you can see it in your Bible, so you can be marking it up, so you can go back to it again this week and see. I want you to have the Word of God in front of you. I want your life to be saturated in the Word of God. Are you making a concerted attempt to invite the Word to dwell inside of you, in your heart, to live there? Warren Wiersbe said this. He's a great Bible teacher. Uh, now with the Lord, he said this, the way we treat the Word of God is the way we treat the God of the Word. I mean, this is how He's speaking to us. Are you letting Him speak to you throughout the week? And when the Word is living inside of you like this, it will naturally result in you and me teaching and admonishing one another. That's what Paul says next. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And, and, and this, this is a natural outflow of having the Word in you is that the Word then flows out from you. And you don't need to be a small group leader. You don't need to be a teacher in the church. You don't need to be a biblical soul care counselor to do this. You don't need to be a, a pastor or a preacher to do this. This is every single one of us having the Word of God dwelling inside of us. And then just by default in our normal conversations and our normal relationships with one another, we're just admonishing and encouraging encouraging and blessing one another with the Word of God. And this is going to result in something because Paul just kind of flows from this thought about the Word into a thought about worship. Then, then we're overflowing in worship, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. You see, all of, all of what we're talking about here is going to change our expression in worship and our engagement in worship. And the picture here is not of, as we often see in the Scripture, it's not of personal worship, just me and God. It's, it's, it's not about, you know, a worship is everything that we do, and, and so we're worshiping 24-7. It's not really that. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But this, this is a depiction of assembled worship and specifically singing. It's, it's exactly what we've done here this morning. And when you worship... The question is this, is it evident that Christ is your life? 
I mean, we all bring different temperaments and personalities to worship. I get that. Some people are more expressive than others. I get that. There's no command in the Scripture to lift up hands. It's, it's not a command. It never comes with the force of an imperative. No one should ever force you to raise your hands. It's an invitation. It's a way that we worship, and some people are super comfortable doing it, and that's awesome. We're not, we're not telling anybody that you have to worship in a certain way, but if it's not flowing 100% from your heart, if you can't say in this very moment, I worshiped, the, when we sang those three songs earlier, I worshiped in such a way that I was expressing that Christ is my life. Can you say that? We should all be able to say that, like it moved us, like we were singing it to Him, that it's flowing out of a life that can't contain it because of all that He's done for us. And finally, this last one, a true Christian has a heart that is eager to serve. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And that's every aspect of our life. It's certainly the kind of service we think of around here, but it could be anything. Our service is an act of worship. And so coming out of all of that, the, the question is, are you doing what's necessary to grow the virtues? Are you doing, that's what we're seeing in this point, are you doing what's necessary to grow those virtues that give evidence of the genuineness of your faith in Jesus Christ? Now, let's put the whole message together. As we close this, let's, let's put the whole message together in one picture. And this resource is in your notes, and it's going to be posted on socials tomorrow as well. This is what we're calling the Colossians 3, 12 to 17 cycle. And you can see at the very top, there's a start here um, indicator along with an arrow that points down to the cross. So we're not, we're, not going to start, we're not going to start with the doing part, and we're not going to start with the virtue part. We're not starting by saying, if I do all of these things, I'll earn God's favor, or if I put on these virtues, God will be impressed with me. We're not starting at any other part of the circle. It has to start at the top, at the cross. And the moment that I profess that Christ is my life, and I come to the understanding that I am chosen, I am forgiven, and I'm, and I'm loved, which leads me then to have a heart that is at peace, filled with gratitude, saturated in the Word, overflowing in worship, and eager to serve. And because I have these things and I'm doing these things, I am growing in the Christ-like virtues. I'm putting on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and especially love. Which then, and then here's where it cycles, you can see it coming all the way around full circle which then provides evidence for anyone to see and for my own heart and mind to be assured that Christ indeed is my life. And because He's my life, I give myself again to these things and I see these virtues grow and I'm reminded again that Christ is my life and I give myself further to these things and my virtues grow and I'm reminded again that Christ is my life and around and around and around we go until the day, the day that we see Jesus face to face. Let me pray. Father, um, I think about your patience and how you bear with us through our struggles, through our wrong understandings, through our wrong practices. Father, how you bear with us through our, our complacencies and our rebellions and our ignorance. Thank you, God, for your 
patience with us. And Father, for communicating again through your word with such clarity how we're to see all of this. And I do pray, God, first of all, that if there's any watching right now or any in the, in the room who have not yet declared Christ to be their life, that in this very moment they would admit, they would believe, and they would confess by faith that Jesus Christ would be their Lord and Savior. And for those of us who have professed Christ, Father, I pray that we would do the hard examination that this passage demands of us. Father, if there's a need for repentance to, to double down again on the things that we need to do in order to build the virtues, to, to put on Christ, Father, help us with that. Holy Spirit, forgive us and work with us. We want everyone around us to see that Christ is our life. He is our all. And there is nothing else. And we pray this in his name.